The sermon lesson today comes from Luke 17, 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Molly. Good morning, grace and peace, Austin. Good to be with you all. It's a joy to be in Austin always. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about my family. Uh, my wife, Fran, and I met many years ago back in 1983 at a Christian event. It wasn't a worship service. It was a Christian conference put on by col uh, four college students. It was called KC83. It was in Kansas City, Missouri. It was one of the coldest winters in American history, uh, even as cold as the polar vortex, right, of last year in the Midwest. And um, I sat down with 18,000 college students on the end of a row, and in walks this beautiful redheaded girl from Alabama and said, hey, can we sit next to y'all? And I said, sure, absolutely. God gave me a great seat that day. And so we listened to the talk together. Uh, I invited her and her friends to come with me and my friends to get lunch. It was Wendy's we went to, the redheaded restaurant. So redheaded girl, redheaded restaurant. Believe it or not, I had hair then, and it was very red. So we're standing in Wendy's. We're in the line, and she says to me, we've known each other an hour and a half. She says, hey, Paul, if we got married, we'd have all redheaded kids. And we did, and we do. So we've been married 33 years. We have four wonderful redheaded children. Two of them are married. We have two lovely granddaughters, three and one. They have broken the redheaded curse. They are not redheaded. But coming back to Austin makes me think about my family, makes me think about raising children here. We spent uh, 10 amazing years here in Austin. If we could live anywhere in the world, uh, we would live in Austin. We love this place like I know that you love this place. Um, but something about now being 56 years old, the way I am, well past the middle of life, um, you can spend a lot of time trying to look back and think back and get back to old places, old thoughts, old ways you felt, old norms, if you will, old feelings of what normal is. I was just talking with a good friend that I spent the night here with last night and talking about now in this phase of life, how I don't think God wants us to so much go back to something as he wants us to step forward into what he has for us now. And I would argue this morning that what he has for us now, whether you're young or middle-aged or even older, is, is, is thankfulness to God. That thankfulness to God is this huge space that so often we just are not living in, which is our greatest joy and privilege in the Christian life, to be enjoying God, to be knowing Him now and forever. And we don't take Him 
up on that. We don't take him up on that personally. We don't take him up on that collectively in the church. And so the church lacks the power and the vitality that could be ours in Christ. You know, it, living, I live in the Atlanta, Georgia area now. Uh, when I lived in Austin, traffic was bad. It's not nearly as bad as it is for you now. Atlanta traffic is a whole new kind of traffic. It's, it's this odd traffic that is the worst I've ever... I've driven in L.A. I've driven in Manhattan. I've done these things. I've lived in Austin for 10 years. I'm telling you that Atlanta traffic is the worst of the worst because there are no rush hours. It's just always bad. And you'll just come... You know, it might be 10 o'clock at night or 1.30 in the afternoon, or, you know, early, uber early in the morning, and you'll just come on a freeway and be at a dead stop, and you're going, no, no. You know, it's beyond the help of ways, right? Ways can't help you even, right? You're just stuck there. And what happens is you'll just putter along, be in a parking lot, and then just inch along for miles sometimes. And then all of a sudden, you'll see, this just over to the side, it's somebody just with like a service vehicle over there getting a flat tire changed. And the whole thing has been, because everybody's been rubbernecking at that over there, and, it, and, and, and it's ridiculous like the traffic has slowed down for this, right? For miles and miles and miles and miles. I think so often when the world stops to look at us as Christians, when life sort of forces them to, or the situation urges them to, and they kind of look over at us, and I think they say to themselves so often, is that all there is? Really, is that what there is to stop and look at? Thankfulness makes us come alive as the church. Thankfulness makes us become all that Jesus would have us to be in the church. You can hear it right throughout all the Old Testament scriptures. What did Moses warn Israel about? When you come into the land, when you take it, when God gives it to you, don't forget that this fruit from the trees you're eating, you didn't plant those trees. When you're living inside of these walled cities, you didn't build these cities. God gave you these things. Don't forget above all else to be thankful to Him. You hear it in the Psalms, right? Over and over and over again. Israel, give thanks to the Lord. House of Israel, give thanks to the Lord. House of Moses, give thanks to the Lord. Priests, give thanks to the Lord. Levites, give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. This constant urging to be thankful people. It's all over the New Testament, right? It's everywhere. It's in all of Paul's letters. I just read it afresh this morning, reading out of Ephesians 5. Paul is right in the middle of giving all kinds of instructions. And he says, interestingly, put away sexual immorality, put away idolatry of all kinds, stop walking in the darkness, and setting off of that, he says, and be thankful. Be thankful. Now, in this story, right, Jesus sort of finishes by saying, there were ten people here who ought to be thankful. Only one is. Where are the other nine? Where, where are they? Jesus might be sort of saying to us this morning, where are you people of grace and peace? Why are you not coming back in front of me to give me thanks? Let's, let's look together at how we can become, by Jesus' grace working in us, alive with gratitude to Him. 
His thankful church is his flourishing church. And a thankful church, first of all, is filled with people who have eyes to see. Eyes to see all that we have to be thankful for in Christ. So coming back to our narrative, what's happening, right? Jesus is traveling through the region, sort of meandering his way towards Jerusalem. He's in this Sumerian region, which is mixed with Jewish peoples and non-Jewish peoples. And, and here he is on the, on the edges of, of Judea in this Samaritan region. And he comes, and, and he comes into this village, and there are ten lepers standing outside the village who are saying, Jesus, have mercy on us. Why are they standing outside the village? Why are they apart from everything else? Because that's what you did as a leper. To be a leper meant that you had some kind of skin condition that was literally rotting away your flesh, tearing it apart, that really could not be healed by medical science of the time, and which required a miracle from God to find any hope of healing. So to be a leper was to live apart, to live over here a kind of zombie sort of lifestyle, right? Uh, in Atlanta this weekend, I was just in Atlanta seeing my grandchildren. We live in Athens, Georgia. We spent the night in the hotel with a bunch of our kids and grandkids this weekend because we rent our house out on game days in Athens for the Georgia Bulldog game. So too much information, you didn't need all that. But we're in Atlanta. We're staying downtown before I'm going to fly out here. Um, and I, and, and I'm, I'm there, and I'm checking in at the hotel, and the guy goes, oh, Mr. Hahn, this is great. There's so much going on down here. The Falcons are playing. Georgia Tech's playing. Georgia State is playing. There are all these games. This is, this is awesome. And there's a zombie convention. They're having a Walking Dead convention right down the street. I think, really? I thought we had gotten past that. Like, you know, you remember the zombie craze of like 10 years ago? Everything was about zombies, right? We're kind of past that a little bit, but it seems the Walking Dead still lives in Atlanta, right? Okay, but these people are living the kind of walking dead experience. They're out there. They're living apart from everybody with this bodily breakdown, which is creating a social breakdown for them, right? Everybody doesn't know what to do with lepers. They, they have to be apart because we're afraid they're going to give the disease to us. And so to be a leper was not just to be dying physically, to live, doing sort of a walking dead thing physically. It was to be doing a walking dead thing socially. All you could connect with were other lepers. You're pulled out of your family. You're pulled out of your workplace. You're pulled out of your worshiping community. You're pulled out of your best sets of friendships. And all you do is live with other people who have the same kind of living death experience you do because that's what lepers did. And then to be a leper was not just to feel a physical death and a social death, but it was to feel a spiritual death, right? Because you know if you've been around the church long and you've read much of the Old Testament, leprosy was that mark God would put on people when he was trying in some small way to picture what his judgment was. When Moses' sister Miriam grumbled against Moses' leadership and God's leadership for the people, God strikes Miriam with leprosy for a time and then he lifts that off of her. When King Uzziah is a beautiful king in the middle of the sort of monarchy reign in Judah 
and, and he's leading the people toward God, but he decides being king is not enough. I want to be prophet, priest, and king together in one person. And he goes into the temple and he starts to swing a censer filled with incense. And leprosy comes on him as this picture of God saying, no, that's not my way of blessing and flourishing. The picture of God's judgment. When God heals the leper through Elisha, Naaman, the enemy of God who comes and gets in front of Elisha and finds healing. Elisha's servant Gehazi is greedy and wants the gifts that Naaman would offer him. When Elisha said, no, this is for free. This is to show you the utter grace of God, that God even wants to give blessing and healing to his enemies when they come looking for his mercy, pleading forgiveness and looking for hope in him. But Gehazi said, no, give me the silver and the clothes, Naaman. I want those. And he lies about it, and his greed drives him to take these things. He stands in front of Elisha again, and Elisha says, the leprosy that was on Naaman is going to be upon you. To be a leper was to be dead physically, dead socially, dead spiritually, as it were. To be under a picture, at least, of being under God's wrath and judgment. So these people, these lepers, are just standing away. And all they can do from a distance is say, Jesus, have mercy on us. So what does Jesus do? From a distance, he shouts back at them, go show yourselves to the priests. That may not mean much for us, but to them in that context, that was to offer a word of deep hope. Because the only reason a leper would go show himself or herself to a priest was in the hope that cleansing had occurred in my body and maybe God has had a miracle on me and lifted me out of this living death and is going to put me back in community with God's people and is going to lift whatever this picture, if not the deep sense of His judgment off of me and give me the blessing of a miracle. And so these men are hearing it. To go to a priest was to be told you were officially cleansed. The leprosy is gone. They were the ones who would declare that reality and the person comes back into the community through that gateway. And so as these men begin to walk, they see, right, that they are in fact cleansed. A miracle has happened for them. But Luke says what? One man saw something more. One man saw that he was not just cleansed of his leprosy, that Luke says he has been healed. Luke's a genius with medicine and with literature. And he weaves those together in telling the story of the gospel to talk about the true healing that can be ours in Jesus. And he uses this word here that is implying holistic, deep, down to the bottom, inside and out, wellness. A word of salvation. One man sees, I haven't just been cleansed. I've been saved. I've been rescued. I've been healed. Thanksgiving starts, right, when we really have eyes to see all that God has done for us in Christ. I love the fact that this man sees these things before he can see these other blessings that might come if the priest will declare him clean. 
Can I come back? Is the leprosy really gone and is it going to stay gone? Can I come back into my family? Will my family accept me and welcome me? Will my wife still have me? Will my children still know me? Does my workplace still want me? Is there still a job for me? He doesn't know the answers to any of those things. And there may be great brokennesses ahead for him to face. And there certainly are all the brokennesses of his own personage that he's going to have to deal with ongoingly. But what he sees is God has healed me, lifted me out of this living death back into a place of life. What do you see as a Christian in Jesus? What do you see that he has given you? What's he given me? He has taken me from a place of death to life. He has put me inside of a community that is believing and hoping together in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that He has begun to make all things do. And we are living now in this community where we get declared to us week after week after week from God's representative that though I am sinning, though I am like a sheep going astray, though I am forfeiting tons of my rights and blessings, as a Christian, though I wander constantly, the Father loves me and welcomes me home and has given Jesus for me to heal me of judgment and all that is due for my sin and who will continue a path of healing all throughout my journey. Do you have these eyes that see really deeply what Jesus has done. My first challenge to you this morning is to take the time today to just reflect on that. Make some space this afternoon, tonight, into this week, and just create the space to say, God, help me see what you have done for me in the gospel. Not just back there when I was very young, when I first believed, not just at that special place where I came to faith as a younger person or in the middle of life, but right now, what have you done and are you doing to bring total healing to me and to revel in that, to celebrate that? I just like to tell one story, and it's fitting to tell it here in Austin about when God reminded me of that in a fresh way. My children were all young. In fact, the fourth one wasn't quite born yet. He was in the womb with Fran. Uh, but our three daughters were born. Two of them were in school, and, uh, and uh, one was still at home. And I planned this amazing 10th anniversary trip for me and my wife to get away, to go to the beach, it was going to come at the end of the school year in middle of May around our original anniversary date. And I uh, got my parents to come in and take care of the kids. And this is going to be this awesome trip. I can't plan like where I'm going to go eat lunch today. I'm horrible. I'm absolutely horrible. But I actually for once in my life planned this trip. And it was amazing. And it was awesome. Only thing was my wife got pregnant in the middle of my planning. So instead of us having this romantic getaway, you know, to go to, back to the beach and re-celebrate a 10-year anniversary, she's seven months pregnant and we get to the beach. I don't want to go to the beach. I don't want to go be a whale out on the beach, right, you know? 
So it was, didn't turn out the way we had fun. It was just different, right? So we come back from this trip, and my kids greet us. I can still see us in our kitchen in our Austin home, and we're coming in. I'm like, Daddy, it's so good to see you and Mommy. It's summer. We finished school. We had a great time with our grandparents. It's summer. Yay, Daddy. But I had stupidly, please don't do this as a father of young children, at the end of the school year, I gave them extra chores to do, extra projects to do, to make sure they were really good and busy while we were gone. So I said, well, that's great. I'm so glad school's over. How did you do with your chores, your special projects? We didn't do those, Daddy. But it's summer, and we had a great time. And I said, well, and I can still see myself in that kitchen in the house in Austin saying to them in my best preacherly voice, you know, at like 33 years old, well, children, next time I want you to be a better steward of your time. Steward. What does that go to a seven-year-old? And I walked down the hall to our bedroom, and the Holy Spirit said to me in, in the closest thing to an audible voice he's ever spoken to me, what kind of steward have you been, Paul? And that started this whole summer of reflection where the Spirit took me into deep, hard places. And He took me to two places. Um, one place He took me was that I had been offered this position to give leadership to all of our denominations, campus ministry. But because of the way I treated the former person in charge of the, the way that I had really treated him very badly in public, which I'd apologize for, but I knew that was driven by my coveting his position rather than an honest critique of how he was doing. I knew that I could not take that job if it was ever offered to me. And yet I thought it was the best thing that I could do to give leadership to all that we were doing in our campus ministry. And so what kind of steward I had been, the best way I could serve in the church, I felt, I had completely disqualified myself for because of the way I had publicly shamed this person and spoken against them. The other thing that the Holy Spirit took me to was that I had been given the privilege about a year or two earlier to go meet with Governor George Bush when he was the governor of Texas through a friend of a friend. We spent two hours together um, in his office there in the Capitol. We talked about all kinds of things. He talked about his conversion and how Billy Graham had come and witnessed to him and God had used that to bring salvation into his life and bring Jesus into his life, how he and Laura were authentically trying to live their lives, how they were trying to help their daughters grow in a Christian home and flourish in their faith. And he shared a speech he had written. He showed me his baseball collection from his days with the Texas Rangers as an owner. And then he gave me his favorite book to read, a biography of Sam Houston. And he said, Paul, I'd like you to read this, and I'd like you to come back and visit with me again. And I took that book home, and I read it, and I never called him back. Some kind of reverse snobbery in me, some kind of not wanting to butter up or stick my nose up close to somebody in power. I, I don't know. It is so dysfunctional, so broken, but I never even took a swing at the pitch of the person I could have most potentially influenced who would have an influence on the world. So what kind of a steward had I been? A pretty crummy. 
And the thing was, I couldn't fix those things, right? I couldn't go back and make those things better. And so I just, at the end of the summer, we went on a family trip to the beach, and my dad and I were driving up a couple hours up the coast to see my uncle who was dying. And I told my dad, I was driving the car, and I just told my dad everything that I just told you. And my dad looked over at me with tears in his eyes and said, Son, isn't that why Jesus died for us? For things like that, that we can't fix to save us and heal us in that space? I started crying so hard, I had to pull the car over. I can't remember whether I drove on or Dad drove on. It's been a while now. But in that moment, it was just like I really had eyes to see all that Jesus had done for me in the gospel. Maybe you want to think back and reflect into special spaces like that. Maybe you just want to cultivate the ordinary daily ability to see all that God has done for you in the gospel. Michael Horton, the theologian and teacher at Westminster West, loves to say out in California, there ought to be a sense for us. I'm laughing because a friend is here and we put on a Michael Horton conference here. and It was horrible, but that's another story. Um, but, but he said, it's the worst thing I ever heard him teach because he's great. But he was bad here in Austin. Um, but he said, I've really bombed this. I'm sorry. Forgive me. But he said... He said this, and it was genius. He said, there ought to be a sense. There ought to be a sense that you are coming in touch with the gospel in such fresh ways every so often that you wonder, was I even a Christian before? Because it's touching you so deeply. Because you're seeing with a depth all that God has done for you in Christ in fresh ways. May we have eyes to see, and may that make us thankful people. So the flourishing church in Thanksgiving is a church that sees. Secondly, it's a church that walks, that moves its feet toward Jesus to give thanks. Let's go back to our story, because here's where it gets interesting to me. All ten men, right, are walking to, go what, to do what Jesus has called them to do, to go give themselves before the priest to be declared clean, to be declared that they have the right to come back into God's community, that God has done a miracle for them. They're doing exactly what Jesus called them to do, and they're doing what the Old Testament scriptures commanded them to do. But one of them, when he sees the depth of what's happened to him, the healing that comes to him, his feet take him somewhere else first. Before he goes and gets the declaration of cleansing from the priest, he goes back to Jesus to give him thanks. He is, in effect, superseding Jesus' order about cleansing to prioritize thanksgiving. And Jesus loves it. He's, in effect, saying, well, where are the other nine people? Why aren't they doing this too? How often do you prioritize, do I prioritize thankfulness in our journey with Jesus? You know, we just had a situation come up, so I work 
John said, told you a little bit about what I do. I'm, I'm working and leading an agency that is promoting church planting all across North America and church renewal in our existing churches. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a large job, and much of it is about fundraising, raising funds to promote new works and new movements. Well, in one day, in one afternoon of one day, we faced, coming into this summer, a million-dollar gap for the last six months of the year. We didn't know where that extra million dollars would come from. In two hours one afternoon, I'm with a friend, and he says, tell me about the million-dollar gap you need. And I said, well, here's what we're trying to do. Here's our budget. Here are the new initiatives we're trying to do. We have a million-dollar delta here, and we're just begging God to provide it. And I said, you know, frankly, there's one group that's trying to sell a piece of property in Seattle, and if that sells, they will give us $200,000. He said, let's pray for that before we had a meeting with other people. And we met, we were in this bar, and we prayed intensely together over that and, and, and let they before the Lord's feet. And so we go on into the meeting, and about 30 minutes into the meeting, my phone buzzes. I thought it was Fran saying, Paul, can you bring some stuff home for dinner? It wasn't. It was my friend in Seattle saying, hey, we sold the property. It's now in process. Pray that it goes through. That will be $200,000 for Mission to North America. So I shared that with my friend. I shared that with the other people we were with. It was amazing. So we have a dinner for a group of people at my home that night in my kitchen, and I'm sharing all of this with them as Fran is finishing up dinner. We're sitting around the kitchen table, and everybody is rejoicing and being grateful. And then I go over to the corner, because I've been in meetings all day, and I check my email, and down here, one of the last emails given during the day was from our chief financial officer in the office. She said, Paul... Didn't mean to trouble you tonight, but thought you would want to know we got a gift this morning that passed through from a bequest from a family that was for $795,000. So in two hours, not knowing where that would come from in the world, God gave us a million dollars to carry on his work. Now, do you know what? By the next morning... I was already sour and moving on to my next set of problems. Are you like that? Paul's friend goes, Paul, can we at least just kind of be happy about this for a week? Could we do that? Well, we've been given something far greater than a million dollars in a space of need. We have been given this eternal, deep, utter salvation in Jesus and that needs to move us to prioritize giving thanks to Him. How do you, second application point, how, how, how does God want you to put thankfulness first and best in your life? Not just by saying your prayers you know, over a meal and giving thanks, but, but how does God want you in the flow of your life to step toward Jesus to say thank you. Maybe it is by creating space to pray for people in your world that you know do not know Jesus and you want to just create the space to say, Jesus, out of my thanks to you, I want to come to you giving great thanks and I want to pray, would you please move in these people's lives as you've moved in mine? I want you to glorify your name by bringing this kind of salvation to them the way you brought it to me. And I'm doing this in a spirit of thanks. Maybe you, you know that one person at work that has nobody. 
and in fact sends all the signals that I want nobody to be my friend in the workplace. I'm completely love avoidant in all the signals I'm sending. But you say, Jesus, I want as an expression of gratitude to you to just go make space to begin to love this person. Maybe it is someone who's hurt you very badly. And as an expression of gratitude to Jesus, you say, I want to give up my right. I was just telling someone about this recently, how God spoke to me on this. I'm going to give up my right to see myself as a victim in this situation. And I'm going to step out in love in safe ways, with boundaries where they're needed. But I am going to love the way you have loved me as an expression of thanks to you. Where does Jesus want you to prioritize gratitude? To put something down or to put something on simply out of thankfulness to him? Eyes that see, feet that move, and lastly, the church needs full lives that are laid out in gratitude to Jesus. When I think of Sundays, I think about growing up, I think about going to church, being with my family, and then my dad watching football on Sunday afternoons and me watching football with him. And then he'd come out in the yard with me and we'd run past patterns and he'd throw me the ball. And I would always say, Dad, don't throw it to me. Throw it away from me so I have to dive for the ball. Because that's what the real guys playing real football do, right? They're diving for the ball and skidding on the ground and getting all muddy. That's real football, right? Real life of the church is skidding onto the ground, laying ourselves out to say, Jesus, I will give you all that I have in gratitude to you. What did this man do? He saw what kind of healing had come to him, what kind of salvation that was his. Even in the middle of still much brokenness, much uncertainty, he saw and he moved him to give thanks. He prioritizes getting in front of Jesus to put thankfulness first and best in his journey with Jesus. But he also lays himself out and with a loud voice, gives thanks and praise to God in front of Jesus. Let me tell you what Thanksgiving does, right? Thanksgiving gives you the privilege of enjoying what salvation is all about. Being in front of Jesus and celebrating with your whole being who He is and what He has done for you, and what He promises to make you as a part of His church. You can get a miracle from Jesus right at a distance. You can be outside the village and cry for a miracle, and Jesus can give that to you. But only thankfulness puts you in front of Him and keeps you in front of Him and makes you all that you were meant to be to enjoy the fullness of God in the face and person of Jesus Christ and to give your whole life over in joyful response. The earliest Christians 
their favorite word for this meal, this Lord's Supper, this holy table, this Christian communion celebration was Eucharist. Great thanksgiving. It was a space in which they saw themselves like this man before Jesus, knowing and celebrating all that God was for them in Christ, laying themselves out as it were with full bodies, with full voices to say, I want Jesus to say to you, you are my everything, and I want you to feed me on more of this gospel, to drink your blood that covers all my sin, to eat your body which gives me life and gives me hope in every setting. I want to open wide my mouth and be filled with more things that are good and perfect from you so I can give my whole life over in thanksgiving to you when I go from this place. Where does Jesus finish the story? It's where we'll finish the story. He says, where are the other nine? Was no one else found except this outsider, this foreigner, to come back and give praise and thanks to God? Jesus isn't being racist. He's not so much distinguishing between Jew and Gentile here. What he's saying is the others were insiders. The others were Jewish people, my covenant people. They were people who should have known this was all about gratitude to God and all for gratitude to God and all for the privilege of giving gratitude to God. But they don't get it. It's the guy who was the outsider the Samaritan, the foreigner to these things who newly comes into this grace, like the woman at the well, right? Who can't stop talking about everything that Jesus has done for her, what he's revealed to her and the grace he's offered her. This man can't get over what's happened to him in Jesus. And he just has to be in front of him to give him thanks. So if you're like me, and you've spent most of your life or all of your life in the church, you're probably not going to be very good at this. New Christians are way better at this typically than we are. Here's where we can go back to something, to go forward, to realize this is everything. This is the wonder of wonders. This gospel in Jesus Christ Celebrate Him there. Revel in Him there. Enjoy what true celebration of the kingdom of God is to be about by being in front of Him with your whole being. And then we have something to share with the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You for this time. We praise You for being the God who saves us. And Jesus, we are admitting right here as we approach this table of the great thanksgiving that we aren't good at giving thanks. Forgive us, Lord. Help us. Renew us in your love. Give us eyes to see all that you have done and you are doing for us. Give us feet that move us to get in front of you, to prioritize thankfulness to you, above all other spaces in our lives and to let thanksgiving be an expression of everything we do in our lives. And Jesus, may we lay it all out. May we have our lives poured out like a drink offering 
as Paul put it of old, in thanksgiving to you. So that when the world comes by and drives by us and looks and sees, they see a people raucously, joyously living in gratitude to our God and Savior. And they say, wow, perhaps there's something for me here too. Jesus, we pray all of this in your name and for your name's sake. Amen.